Well, good evening. It is a great pleasure to be with you tonight. Last night we talked about the power of story. And we tried to trace between Genesis and Revelation the story of the Lamb, making a few brief stops and not giving enough attention to any of the passages. Having covered the entire Bible yesterday, I promise to be a little more narrow in focus this evening. We find ourselves dealing with the approach of the Lord Jesus to the cross. There's a Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, that speaks about the incarnation. And I wonder if you've noticed a very strange line in that hymn. We sing it. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation was a shot across the bows of every dark spiritual force. The one who will judge the world, the one who will deal forever with the problem of sin and brokenness has arrived. And there is no middle ground for him. He is either your greatest joy or your greatest fear. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The incarnation is a marvelous miracle. But now we come to sacred ground. Tonight we're going to talk about the approach to the cross. The baby born in Bethlehem in humble circumstance, the baby born to die is now a man. A man who has been publicly declared as the chosen lamb of God, the one who pleases the father's heart. And he knows full well where he's going. And he's told those who love him that he must go to the cross and he must die. And they, very much like we, heard the word of God incarnate. They didn't quite know what to do with it. They didn't understand it. They said things like, this will never happen to you. He takes them to the upper room. And there he breaks bread with them. And he indicates that this is a picture of his body, and it's to be done in commemoration of him on an ongoing basis. He washes their feet. What a moment. And then he leads them out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Dare I say, his heart is heavy. He knows what comes. He knows full well where he's going. And he's beginning if I can say it this way of our Lord, he's beginning to sense in a fresh way, does that phrase even work? The solemnity, how, how can we talk about God now dealing in time and understanding that he will die and he'll die for sin, not his own. He leads those who have been closest to him, who he loves out to the garden of Gethsemane. We understand that the garden was a place he frequently went to be with his father and to pray, and he frequently took the disciples there. And so on this most solemn of evenings, he takes them there again. God loves gardens. I wonder if you've noticed that. He starts in a garden, doesn't he? And he'll lead those he loves out to a garden, and 
Not long after that, he'll be on a cross between two thieves, and he'll say to one of them, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And if you wondered what the word paradise means, it's just this, the garden of God. He says to the thief beside him, Today you and I will be in a garden. I think gardens always speak of fellowship. What a sad thing then that Judas will betray him right there, betrayed by a friend. Well, he's buried, isn't he, in a garden tomb. That seems appropriate. And when he rises, now I said to you, God has a sense of humor or the ironic, or I don't know how you want to put it, but when he rises and Mary comes to find him, you know who she mistakes him for? The gardener. I think that's no mistake. This is the great gardener who plants seed that is dead and brings life where there should have been no life. And so the great gardener has risen. And one day, you and I, if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus, you know where we're going. We're going, and we're going to see a tree of life and a river. We're going to spend time in fellowship with God. It'll be a garden. He likes gardens. Takes those he loves, that he's closest to, he takes them into the garden. It's an interesting process that is, bears a little thinking about, you know, he takes the 12 with him. Well, the 11, Judas is gone. And he takes them to the garden. That's a place of fellowship. But then he takes, we understand, Peter and James and John. Isn't that what our passage on screen says in, in Mark's gospel? He takes Peter and James and John, and they go a little further with the Savior. Isn't it interesting to think that maybe there is a large group of people who walk with and enjoy and appreciate fellowship with the Savior? There are some who are even closer than others. Some who have desired closer fellowship, lovely to be saved, but even lovelier to be in close fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And Peter and James and John, they are, how do we understand this, closer to him than the others, and he brings them along. But then we understand he goes even a little further. Luke's gospel explains it this way. If I turn on the power, Luke's gospel explains it this way. Garden was his custom, no surprise to us there. He takes Peter and James and John, and then he goes even a stone's throw beyond them, as close as they were, as much as he appreciated their fellowship. There were things he would endure that he alone would understand. And so on three occasions, he comes and he finds them sleeping, and we perhaps judge the Peter and James and John harshly. How could you sleep at a moment like this as the Lord Jesus in that solemn moment sweats as it were great drops of blood and he's not overcome he stands up to it he endures the cross he despises the shame but there in the garden the weight of that sin is beginning to hit him in a in a way and he does that alone now, don't judge the disciples who fall asleep too harshly because Luke adds, Luke is the gospel of detail, isn't it? Luke adds this little interesting detail that's easy to miss. When he comes to find them sleeping, what are they sleeping from? Laziness? Indifference? Fatigue? They're sleeping from sorrow. You get the sense that the disciples see in the Savior the heaviness of that moment, and though they don't understand it in its fullness, though they've not been able to take in his words and appreciate what he's really telling them, the weight of it hits them, and it's beyond human capacity to endure. Have you ever slept from sorrow, 
so overcome with the weight of the moment that your, your body gives out. And this is Peter and James and John understanding to just a little degree what the Lord Jesus is fully enduring. And there he is in the garden. He'll go out and he'll greet Judas. There's not a trace of irony that I can imagine in his voice as he says, friend, do what you've come for. Betrayed with a kiss. What a moment, what a moment. So we want to talk tonight about that path to the cross, quite literally, those few steps, those few moments going up the hill. Subsequent messages, we will speak about the empty tomb and about the ascension and about the cross itself. But tonight we want to talk about the journey there. And as we do, maybe we'll open in a word of prayer. Father, what a what an amazing time we commemorate this evening. We thought of your son bearing the weight of our sin, beginning to feel the sense of that, beginning to feel the tremendous burden, the cost of our salvation there in the garden in Gethsemane, and yet setting his face as a flint, willingly going, dare I say it, joyfully going. Father, thank you for the one who came, who was in his incarnation, the summation of all hopes and all fears. He is now our hope. And so as we speak of him tonight, we ask for your grace and your guidance. In our Savior's name, amen. I'll ask you this question. Do you think God wastes words? We have this lovely book in front of us. Now, if I'm in school, some of you are in school, and you understand how letters home go, or these days maybe it's texts or email. Hi, mom and dad. How's the dog? <laughs> really miss you guys. Hope everybody there is well. How's Aunt Marjorie's lumbago? And then the second paragraph. You know, uh, I'm a little tight for cash at the moment. <laughs> Then there's another paragraph. Really love you guys lots, sincerely. Well, you know the first paragraph and the closing paragraph are kind of fluff, right? <laughs> you know what the letter's about. I come to the letters to the churches, and there's all these openings. Interesting, isn't it? There's letters to churches that are doctrinally confused. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? There's letters to churches that are corrupt in ways even Sudbury can't imagine. Letters to Corinth, right? There's letters to churches that are enduring suffering and struggle. There's letters to churches that are going on well. There's letters to churches that have doubts about eschatology. What's going to happen in the future? Has the Lord already come and have we missed it? There's letters to all sorts of churches and they routinely begin and close the same way and I don't think it's fluff. Grace, always grace, and peace to you. That's interesting, isn't it? Do we just discard that when we read it? I hope not. It seems to me that one of the things we can take away, and it's not our subject tonight, is that there is no circumstance in life that you will face collectively or individually that will be made worse by the application liberally of grace. And in fact, everything is improved by grace. It seems to be God's universal prescription. I don't think they're wasted words. 
What are we to say? Well, let's talk about these people. Anybody, I won't humiliate you, but if you know these names, hands up. Anybody know Clint Holmes or Edison Lighthouse or Carl Douglas? Have we got one? <laughs> one victim of the 70s? A couple. There's a couple. I can make it easier for you. A little easier now? Maybe, maybe for some of you. You know what these are? We call these one-hit wonders. They appeared, they caught a moment, the right producer, the right marketing, whatever it is, and the songs they wrote, fluffy and pointless as they were, rose to ascendancy on the charts, and then, as befits a one-hit wonder, they disappeared without a ripple. We find some interesting passages in scripture, don't we? Third John verse nine, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, doesn't accept what we say. What else do we know about Diotrephes? That's it, man. He's a one verse wonder. <laughs> he appears, he does something miserable, and he disappears. Alexander the coppersmith, he did me much harm. I don't know anything more about coppersmiths or why they're harmful, but Alexander apparently was a bad dude. In the same chapter, we get another one verse wonder of sorts, although there's Demetrius mentioned elsewhere. I don't know if it's the same Demetrius, but here he gets a mention in verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. Apparently it was important to John to say Demetrius has really proven himself. I think so, everybody thinks so. It's objectively true on every level. And you know that I tell you true things, like Demetrius is fantastic. These are little one-offs. One of the things they tell us, I mean, there's a whole story behind this, right? Whole story about Diotrephes, whole story about Demetrius, but we just get one little verse and that's it. And we're kind of left to wonder. What's interesting to me is the Holy Spirit has inspired these words. They're not padding. They're not like when you get a 1500 word essay at school and you hit Microsoft Word word count and it says you're at 1497. So you go back and you add a couple of therefores. <laughs> Oh, 1501, hand it in, right? You can tell I did well in school. <laughs> God's not padding out his word. He's telling you this. Diotrephes, I saw what you did. And it matters. And records are kept. Don't think you're getting away with it. Demetrius, I saw what you did. Don't think it's forgotten. It's commemorated. I'm going to write it down. It's going to be remembered and spoken of thousands of years later. Oh, there's not much detail. But what a story. I tell you what I marvel at. I marvel at the Lord Jesus. We get this phrase. I just shake my head. I think John says if everything was written down that could be written down, there's not enough space in the world to contain the books that could be written. I think about verses like this that say they were bringing all their sick from all the surrounding villages. And then it says this, it just finishes the story, and he healed them all. Okay, hold up. 
There are potentially thousands of stories that would captivate us if the recipient wrote a novel about it. There are thousands of people who would say the single moment in my life that mattered was the day someone carried me to where the Lord Jesus was and cut a hole in the roof and lowered me down and he healed me. All these things that don't get a mention, they maybe get one verse, one little look in. Well, I told a brother here last night that I tried to speak on the whole Bible last night. You can judge how well that worked out. And that tonight I was going to speak about one verse. I kind of cheated. I want to speak about someone I'll call a one verse wonder. But he actually appears in three Gospels. He gets one verse in each of the three Gospels. He's a guy named Simon. Simon of Cyrene. I don't know much about Simon. Like I say, he's just a one verse wonder. Cyrene is a little place on the north coast of Africa. And having been in Africa, I remember as a five-year-old coming home from Africa, my sister was born there just before we came home. And uh, I remember marveling at the advanced intellectual age of five that my sister was not black. Didn't understand that. She was born in Africa after all. What was Simon? It doesn't tell us actually. He's from the north coast of Africa. He might well have been black. There's a big Jewish colony in Cyrene. Might well have been a Jew. Simon is one of those names that bears a lot of cultural background. It could have been any number of cultures. Simon of Cyrene. What do we know about him? Well, let's talk about his story. And you'll forgive me, I trust a little bit. We've only got one verse and I've got some time to fill. So we're going to have to use our imagination here. But maybe what we should do is we should put ourselves in Simon's shoes because we do know some things on the authority of Scripture about Simon. We know Scripture calls him a, a passerby. He's come from Cyrene and he's in Jerusalem. And he has a mission. He's got something he's there to do. I don't know if he was a businessman or if he was going to visit Aunt Marjorie or he was a tourist and wanted to see the sights. I have no idea. But Simon had a mission that day as he walked through Jerusalem. He'd come from Cyrene to do something. He's a passerby. He had not come to see a crucifixion. He was intending to carry on through past where he walked. But on this given day, we know he walked past some sort of a gate or a door. And just at the moment he passed, isn't coincidence and circumstance a funny thing? Just at the moment he passed, the door opens. And out comes a trail of misery you can hardly imagine. Row after row after row of soldiers and prisoners, and they're carrying their cross and they're going to go up a hill and they're under the sentence of Roman death and they're going to die there, accompanied by guards. So Simon, I suppose, has to stop, has to hold up. He's interrupted by this stream of misery. And in that stream, out comes a prisoner who's a little different from the others. You see, he's been beaten in a way none of the others have been beaten. His beard has been plucked out. His back has been like a plowed field. He is, if I can describe him this way, because scripture says it, almost unrecognizably human. 
He suffered the indignity. Now, I, I can't really imagine the hatred that inspires this. I don't want to imagine the hatred that inspires this, but <laughs> someone has, under instruction of a superior, or maybe out of a misplaced sense of zeal, has gone to a thorn bush and has taken the biggest thorns they can find and woven them together and made a little faux crown. They've jammed that down on his head. There's the marks of that there as he comes out. Imagine the hatred that inspires that. I can't fathom that you would fashion a crown of thorns without pricking yourself. You have to really hate someone to do that. They hated me without a cause. Isn't that the testimony of scripture? And out he comes. And uh, well, here's what the Roman soldiers fear. He's not going to make it to the top of the hill. We want him to carry his cross. He's supposed to die on that cross. He's supposed to be crucified. That's the sentence. And we have beaten him so badly, he may well die right here. He cannot carry this cross. They look around. I want to guess that Simon was fairly spry, maybe a big guy. Because the soldiers look around, and we know this happened. They look around. You take this cross. <laughs> no, no, I've got, I, I have an appointment. I'm good. I was, I was just, I'm just going through. I'm not here for the crucifixion. I have, I have to go. Doesn't the text say they pressed him into service? No, no, I don't want to do it. Oh, you're going to do it, chum. Here's a Roman spear. Here's a Roman sword. You will do this. You take the cross. Well, Scripture's not going to tell us what Simon felt that day. But we can do this. I can ask you, if that happened to you, what would you think as that cross is lowered onto your shoulder? I don't want to do this. I'm desperate not to do this. I, this is not for me. I have nothing to do with this. And if I'm thinking a little bit about the kind of Roman justice with which I am familiar, it is a rather rough justice. It is not particularly careful. And I'm not at all confident that if I carry this cross to the top of the hill, they will not forget that it's not mine. And I may well die this day. The weight of death is that cross, and it comes down on Simon's shoulder. There's that walk up the hill. Now, again, we just have to guess. We know, as beaten as he was, the Lord Jesus, forgive me for putting it this way, has certainly not lost his faculties in any degree. And we know he is very capable of speech, for he speaks from the cross. He'll say to John, this is your mother. He'll say, Father, forgive them. He'll say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He'll say, today you'll be with me in paradise. The Lord Jesus speaks, and he has all his faculties, and he's very conscious. Now, Scripture, some like to point to it and say, well, some places it says Jesus carried the cross, and here's three Gospels that say Simon did, and I think that's a conflict, and so I don't believe your Bible. I'll tell you what I think happened. I think they bore it together. 
And I don't know how you want to picture it with the Lord at the front and Simon at the rear, or perhaps they're each on one side of the crossbeam. You can correct me if you know. But I want to ask you this, that as they take that walk to the top of the hill, and knowing that our Lord Jesus is fully conscious and fully capable of speaking, I want to ask you this. Do you imagine that the greatest evangelist who has ever lived said precisely nothing to Simon? We don't know. But I would suspect there was a conversation on the way up that hill. There may well have been. We can't be certain. They get to the top of the hill. And that moment of dread that was there at the bottom of the hill is matched only in intensity by the joy with which Simon feels the cross lifted off his shoulders, the weight of death gone, and the Lord Jesus nailed to that cross where Simon feared he might well die. And Simon, who was pressed into service, did not want to be there, is gloriously free. What do you do, Simon? Don't know, he's a one verse wonder, we're not told. Simon, do you stay? Was there something in those moments? Was there something in the experience of carrying the cross up that hill? Was there something in that that compelled you to stay? Did you watch the Lord Jesus die? Did you hear him speak? Simon, did you run for your life and gather your things and just get out of there, man? You could perhaps understand both reactions. I have no idea what happened. After all, he's just a one-verse wonder, or maybe a three-verse wonder. I like to imagine Simon getting home, back to Cyrene. There's his wife. How was the trip, honey? What do you suppose he talked about? Oh, you know, Jerusalem, you know how the weather is. It's very changeable. Don't much like the Romans. Was late to catch the bus. I don't know. What do you suppose was the first story out of Simon's mouth? Honey, you will not believe what happened. Now, as the days go by, after that day where Simon carried the cross, as the days go by, it becomes clearer and clearer that there is more than a little buzz about this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, there are hundreds of people saying, we've seen him and he's risen from the dead. And they're beginning to teach that he died for sin. And the Lord Jesus, if I can use the term, has become somewhat of a celebrity. He's the talk of the town. Simon and his wife out at a dinner party, and the wife elbows the husband. I don't know. Wives, they all have bony elbows. Have you noticed that about wives? <laughs> she elbows Simon. You know, the conversation has lulled. Simon, Simon, tell the story. Simon never has to turn to her and say, honey, what story are you talking about? Like I often have to turn to my wife and say, honey, what story are you talking about? Simon only has one story. He's a one-trick pony. There's never been a moment like this in Simon's life, and there never could be. And Simon's going to tell the story. How does it change Simon's life? I don't know. He's just a one-verse wonder, isn't he? Or is he? I don't, I don't really know. Um, let me tell you a little story about a place called Antioch. There's a church at Antioch, and um, it's there, by the way, that they're first called Christians, little Christs. It's apparently a term of derision 
a mocking term. These are people who gather and they worship this Christ person and they're sort of made fun of. They're called Christians. That's at Antioch, not in Jerusalem. You know what else happens in Antioch? It's really interesting. In Antioch, it's the first place that the gospel is given to Gentiles. Jerusalem is in the business of preaching the gospel to Jews. It doesn't go to Gentiles. But in Antioch, Gentiles are getting saved. And Jerusalem, as all good, big, serious churches do, says, well, wait a minute. I don't know if we like this. Let's send somebody up to evaluate the situation. Who do they pick? Good old Barnabas. I love Barnabas, by the way. How can you not love Barnabas? He's not a one-verse wonder, but he's very subtle. He's woven all through the New Testament. Barnabas, the encourager. If there's a problem, let's send Barnabas. He'll sort it out. And Barnabas goes to Antioch, and he spends some time there, and he can send the message back. He can say, boys, you've got to see what's happening here. There is no doubt this is of God. People are getting saved. Isn't that what it says? A large number who believed turned to the Lord. That's what Barnabas saw. The hand of the Lord was with them. The disciples first called Christians at Antioch. Well, skip back in Acts chapter 11 and look at verse 20 for a minute. Some of them, men of Cyprus and, oh, wait a minute, Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Is that you, Simon? I don't know. He's just a one-verse wonder. But something happened in Cyrene that led men of Cyrene, maybe Simon among them, to go back to Antioch and say, this gospel needs to go to the Gentiles. And you can be thankful to men of Cyrene today for the fact that the gospel has been preached to you. Was that you, Simon? I don't know. Interesting, in the verses that are referenced for us in the gospel, Simon is given this title, Simon... And he's given a disambiguator. That's a big word. It means a term that lets you understand who a common named person really is. So when the scripture uses a name that was very common in its day, it often adds a phrase to clarify which person they're talking about. So there were lots of Simons. And if I just said to you, Simon did this or Simon did that, you'd say, well, Simon who? And back in the Gospels, we read this of Simon of Cyrene, that he was the father of Rufus and Alexander. The implication being that those who read these letters, those who cherished the Gospels, those who had the scriptures in their hand would say, oh yeah, I know Rufus, I know Alexander, they're good brothers. Well, how did Rufus and Alexander become good brothers? They're sons of Simon, right? That's the disambiguator, Simon of Cyrene, father of Rufus and Alexander. So what's the story of Simon? I don't know. That's lots of speculation, isn't it? I mean, he's just a three-verse wonder, just a one-verse wonder, I guess. So let me ask you this. You're one of two people here this evening. Maybe you're a little bit like Simon that day. Maybe you have felt the weight of your own sin coming down on your shoulders, and you've understood it's the weight of judgment and ultimately of death. And maybe that's the weight you're even carrying tonight. 
We've all felt that weight. Some of us have had a conversation with the Lamb of God. We've, in picture, if you will, walked up that hill together, feeling the weight of our own sin. And a gracious Savior saying, I'm willing to take all that weight. And some of us, and I hope you're among that number, have gotten to the top of the hill with the Lord Jesus, and we've seen the weight of our sin gloriously lifted. And we've been able to say, I'm free. And we've stayed at the feet of the Savior to watch what he'll do. And it's been marvelous. Maybe you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ here tonight. And you look at these stories and you look at Simon and you think, wow, what a, what a role he played, what a part he had. What a moment that must have been. So it would have been. <laughs> and you look in this text. You know, I have looked, I, I think I've read everything in here several times. And I've looked, there's a gospel by a guy named Mark, but it isn't me. And my name doesn't appear anywhere in here. I'm not even a one-verse wonder. You know what you are tonight, Christian? You're a no-verse wonder. God points out these little people, these little moments, and he says, I noticed. I care. And if your name isn't here, don't you worry so much about that, please. Hebrews 6.10 says this, God is not so unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. What work is there for you to do, brother? What work is there for you to do, sister? I think the Lord notices. Can I tell you a little story? Um, like many stories, it makes fun of me because I keep tripping over my own feet and doing silly things. I'll probably do some this weekend. I probably already have done some. I found my phone, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> I was invited to speak in Elliott Lake. It was a little meeting. It's sadly since folded, but it was very small. There's many meetings in the north that are very small, and they need encouragement, and they struggle on. I remember going up to a little place called Cochrane, and I was quite disturbed about it when I got I thought, man, they're really the numbers are down. It's all older folks. And I called my dad. I was a little upset. You know, I said, Dad, I think I think they're going to close the doors. And he kind of smiled. He always had a way of putting things in perspective for me. He said, oh, son, he said, they've been about to close for 50 years. <laughs> and they're still there, cranking along, you know, little assemblies. Anyway, Elliot Lake, they invited me out to preach. And there's a fellow there, one elder, Doug Price. Maybe some of you knew him. He's since gone home to glory. Love, Doug. Uh, one quick story about Doug. We have time. The first time I spoke in Elliott Lake, he invited me home to lunch. And Doug was a very serious man. He had a serious face, you know. And uh, we sat down to lunch. His wife was about to serve lunch. And he said, honey, just before you serve lunch, I'd like to speak to Mark a little bit. Uh-oh. He said, Mark, would you, would you come down to my study, please? Trudge down the stairs. He sits down at his desk. He says, come in and close the door. I close the door, and as I turn to close the door, down on a lever comes a piece of train track, and it connects. And Doug has built a train all the way around the inside of his study, 
and he pushes a little button on his desk and up comes the choo-choo. <laughs> wanted to show me his train set. <laughs> we had a nice lunch. Anyway, some weeks later, I'm in Elliott Lake and um, get there for the breaking of bread. And there's me and there's Doug and four elderly ladies. So Doug opens and he introduces me. That was very nice. So I got up, I gave out a hymn, long pause. Doug got up and prayed, this is breaking bread. Long pause, I got up and said something. Doug got up, gave out a hymn. There's an older couple sitting at the front. There's one older fellow there, one more fellow, and he's there at the front. And I have to tell you, this is a very poor attitude to have in the big breaking of bread, by the way. Don't do this. Um, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what's your problem? <laughs> like, can you see we're flailing here, man? Like, we're running out of juice. All you have to do is just get up and say, thank you, Lord, or give out a hymn. And I, you know, then I thought, no, I got to be more charitable. A little grace. Grace always helps a situation. A little grace. So I recovered my composure. I thought to myself, look, maybe, maybe he just came in. He's never been to a breaking of bread before. He's nervous. He's new. I should not judge him so harshly. And then Doug got up and he gave thanks for the bread. And this Yahoo, he gets up and he breaks the bread and hands it out. I'm like, you, you know the drill. And you just left us here, man. And it's the same thing with the wine. And I, now I'm boiling. I can't believe it. We go down. Oh, Mr. Helpful is serving the coffee. Of course he is. He's willing to serve. And his wife says, oh, Mark, it's so nice to meet you. My husband would like to say hello, but he had a stroke. And he's lost the ability to speak. Yeah. People make judgments and people come to conclusions. You know what? The Lord knows. While I'm sitting there judging and being harsh, the Lord is to that man saying, I appreciate your service. I appreciate your attendance. The Lord is seeing all of that going on. So you're gathered here tonight. You're carrying on in service. You are not mentioned here at all. And maybe you're not even mentioned in your home assembly. And maybe you're not even appreciated in your own home and you're just soldiering on and it's tough. Let me tell you, you're noticed. God is not so unrighteous so as to forget your service. God bless you for working for him. I think God blessed Simon. He's just a one verse wonder. You've read this story, how many times did you just kind of skip over that bit? Maybe not notice him? Easily done. There's a lot of one verse wonders, you know, a lot of the letters to the churches, they'll, um, they'll close with commendations for people, just little greetings. Greet Caesar. You know, he has that meeting in his house. I don't know anything about Caesar. He's got kind of a bad name, actually. God noticed him. God notices the one-verse wonders, and he notices the no-verse wonders. And we have a lovely Savior who walked that road to the cross, bearing the weight of sin. Tomorrow morning, we'll have the privilege of speaking about that cross and about that unbelievable moment. What a moment. It's the crisis point of history. It's the meeting of every hope and every fear. Imagine that heaven paused. Dare I say, in shock? Did the angels know the plan? I don't think they did. 
I know the demons didn't know the plan. What a moment. And we'll look forward to talking about that together tomorrow night. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the walk your son took that day so many years ago. Beaten by cruel hands, scorned and mocked. The victim, if we can use that term, the victim of a ridiculous show trial. Those who lied about him, the one who betrayed him. And then our Savior would take that walk to the cross, knowing that there he would bear the awful weight of the sins of the world. Thank you for such a wonderful Savior. Thank you for this time of year when we commemorate that dreadful and awesome moment. Thank you, Father, that you notice the small things, that the very hairs on our heads are numbered, that you notice the falling of a sparrow, and we're very much more precious than a sparrow. Thank you for your letters to the churches, which your son can say again and again and again, I know. And for every need in every heart tonight, we know we come to a Savior who can say, I know. He is the one who sees. He is the one who knows. He is the one who can meet needs. We're thankful for what the Lord Jesus has done and very thankful for this time of year to commemorate his work. Bless us now as we take a short break. Bless our brother as he'll open the word in a few moments. And bless these thoughts, Father, to our hearts. Would you take from these, uh, from these words what would matter for eternity? Would you impress them on our hearts? And would you graciously discard that which is of imagination or not at all helpful? Father, bless these dear folks for being here on a warm night. Thank you above all for the Lord Jesus in his name. Amen.